the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast with me, Laura Slattery. Later, I'll be talking to business affairs correspondent Mark Pohl about the latest revelations at independent news and media. And is it the end for the special rate of VAT on hotels and guest houses? Also on the show, how expensive will it be to drive in the era of electric cars? Motoring editor Michael McAleer and consumer affairs correspondent Connor Pope will be here to discuss the latest government proposals on motor tax. But first up, Peter Hamilton has the roundup of this week's business news. Hi, Peter. Hi, Laura. How are things? So Elon Musk has been tweeting again. This time it's about the future of his electric vehicle company, Tesla. It is. Uh, the ever colourful Elon Musk pushed Tesla shares considerably higher yesterday after he tweeted that he's considering taking the company private at $420 a share. So that's good news. That's quite a premium on the existing price. Uh, and, and he added in his tweet that he has secured funding. Funding secured was the way he put it. Now, the stock had already been boosted yesterday after a Financial Times report, which said that Saudi Arabia was taking a sizable stake in the company. So Musk has been taking issue with some of the stock swings and some of the market news of late. He says that it's uh, it's detracting from what they're doing in the company and its the staff are losing focus as a result of the big swings. So the, the, his rationale for taking it private is just that. Uh now, the the thing about the tweet, while on the face of it, it's fine. You are allowed tweet company news uh, under uh, under the rules of the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, the, U, uh, the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing is that when you do tweet, you have to send out a market announcement at the same time. Now, this has caused a bit of a stir in the US. Uh, and there are concerns now that Elon Musk may be leaving himself open to some sort of action as a result of not putting out a market announcement. So what happened was he tweeted, but there was no simultaneous announcement. That came a few hours later after, you know, they'd had to halt the trading on the shares. That's right. So there was a considerable lag, about four hours between him tweeting and the market announcement coming out. The the thing about that is the tweet itself was very, there wasn't a whole lot of detail in it. So... I suppose people had to guess what what he meant by it uh, and read into it to some extent. And that's not never good for the market. And, and as you say, shares were suspended. Because, I mean, the stock jumps. I mean, if, if he had been doing some trading, now he, he wasn't, but or somebody else might have been, mm. there, there's all kinds of questions about market manipulation there, isn't there, potentially? There are, and, and one would think that this leaves the company open to a raft of legal action for people with relatively deep pockets. Uh, you know, again, as I say, because there was so little information in the tweet, uh, it leaves it open to interpretation. And so it was an unorthodox announcement, but it's also quite a, a, a big thing that he's he's trying to do here. Yeah, it, it doesn't take away from what he's trying, trying yeah. to do. Of course, this is this is a uh, is it a, a seventy billion dollar company, or it's a it's a very big company. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I believe it would be one of the largest uh, leveraged buyout, buyouts in, in history. There you are, and that perhaps is why he added those two words at the end of that tweet that funding is secured. Mm. Uh, he wouldn't be able to afford this on his own, of course. So he would need that backing to take it private. And to to be able to make decisions on a longer term basis, he says making them on a quarterly basis isn't good for the company and isn't good for staff. 
Uh, well, you've seen before how ill-tempered he can be on some Indeed. of those uh, calls with uh, analysts. Yeah, so perhaps, yeah. yeah, being a public company isn't really best suited to Mr. Musk. Now, on to one of this year's uh, big themes in business. That's uh, the global trade tensions. Uh, Donald Trump has stepped up the rhetoric in relation to Iran quite substantially this week, uh, hasn't he? Why? He we're, we're, we're rarely far away from rhetoric concerning trade now with the US President Trump. And, and this week he warned that he warned America's trading partners that if they do business with Iran, they won't be doing business with the US. Uh, and his administration, uh, of course, in its, in its typical fashion, imposed blanket sanctions overnight. Now, it's worth noting for Irish companies not to be too concerned. Uh, there's a relatively low level of trade between the two countries. The Department of Business, which which oversees these things, said it hadn't been contacted by any companies seeking guidance. But it says it was intent on alerting Irish businesses to the EU position, which encourages companies to continue to trade with Iran. Uh, And again, worth noting that exports from here to Tehran uh, rose from 72 million in 2016 to 143 million in 2017. If those sound like big figures, they're not. It represents just 0.1% of the state's total exports last year. The bigger thing about this is that the EU now appears on yet another collision course with the US, with the European Union's foreign policy chief, uh, Frederica Mojarini. She called on European businesses to increase their business dealings with Iran in defiance of Trump's statement. So, Another worrying development for the two powers. Yeah, so it was a, it was a them or us ultimatum. And has there been any response from other companies uh, involved in, in with Iran? Daimler actually, Daimler has suspended its its uh, its work in Iran. So there you are. Those with a smaller presence in Iran may consider may consider pulling their business there if it's not a particularly significant market. Right, so finally we've got Ryanair and it's obviously not the first time we've been talking about Ryanair in the podcast this summer and that's because the industrial uh, tensions are rumbling on there. Uh, what's the latest? Well, much like the tariffs and trade wars, Iran is, is rarely far from the news. Just before I came in here, uh, the company had to, was forced to cancel an additional 250 flights, this time from Germany. Uh, because the German Pilots Union VC said they're planning to strike for 24 hours from Friday. And that adds to action planned in Ireland, Switzerland and Belgium. Now, the company had, before this these extra 250 flights, the company had already cancelled 6% of its scheduled flights across Europe on Friday. Uh, and, and that comes as around 100 of its 350 Irish-based pilots uh, gear up to hold their fifth one-day strike this week. It's not good news for the company, and it, it doesn't seem to be abating anytime soon. Um, now, in, in in fairness, in Ireland, members of the Irish Airline Pilots Association, they accepted the company's offer of mediation, and that process begins next week. But Friday's strike will still go ahead as planned. And to add insult to injury, the Dutch Pilots Union, VNV, is also considering strike action for this Friday. So it's actually getting easier to work out which European countries um, where there aren't any Ryanair strikes happening at the moment. Yeah, that's, that is true. It, it's starting to get quite significant. As I said, 6% was cancelled before this announcement of the two, 250 extra uh, German flights. If this continues over the coming weeks and it continues to snowball, it, it could be, it, well, it could provide quite a dent to Ryanair in the longer term. 
Okay, thanks, Peter. We'll take a short break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Mark Paul about INM. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, here to discuss the ongoing intrigue at publisher Independent News and Media and also the fate of the 9% VAT rate, we have Mark Paul. Mark, details of letters exchanged between solicitors representing the board of INM and their former chairman, Leslie Buckley, uh, have been published this week. And they really highlight the extent to which the relationship has broken down between those two sides. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you know, the the INM case has been rumbling on now for several months, and you know, everybody knows that there's a a, a potential scandal there. But really, w- one of the, one of the most interesting things for us now really is that deterioration in the relationship between Leslie Buckley uh, and the company uh, uh, where he was previously chairman and where his you know his shadow really 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 fell over everything. Um, um the the if you cast your mind back, you remember the, the whole story blew up again towards the end of March when Ian Drennan the Director of Corporate Enforcement put in an affidavit his grounding affidavit for his case um, um, seeking high court inspectors and had all the allegations all the colour all, 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 all the juice was in that affidavit and um, uh, this was uh, this was about three weeks after um, INM's new chairman had just been appointed and new members of the board had just been appointed it was effectively a new board a new broom um, and things started to change then about two weeks later um, between Leslie Buckley and the company. Um, and on, on the 10th of April, um, uh, the company wrote to the so-called INM19. They wrote a letter um, basically blaming Leslie Buckley for everything that had happened. They said that the data breach at, at the heart of all of this was unauthorised and happened on the instruction of Leslie Buckley. Now, we wrote, we got a hold of that letter on the 10th of April. And the Irish Times published a story at lunchtime the following day on the 11th of April. Um, 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 highlighting what was in it. And immediately that day, immediately that afternoon, uh, Leslie Buckley's lawyers at ANL Goodbody wrote to INM's lawyers at McCann Fitzgerald saying, look, um, the Irish Times that are publishing this story, can we see this letter that apparently blames our client, Leslie Buckley, for everything? Um, and the next day, uh, uh, the, uh, the solicitors for INM wrote back the Leslie Buckley solicitors, and they said, no, you can't have that letter. It's confidential. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything went south from there in, in, in terms of the relationship. There's a, a flurry of letters uh, o- over the next 10 to 12 days between each side. Um, uh, uh, INM's solicitors wrote to Leslie Buckley's solicitors saying, look, we set up a new investigation uh, uh, that's being led by Deloitte, an internal investigation into what happened on this alleged data breach. Will Leslie Buckley meet with the investigators? Leslie Buckley's lawyers wrote back and said he has absolutely no intention of meeting with them. Um, you haven't treated them to, to fairly. You haven't uh, shown him natural justice, was the phrase they used, by 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 uh, by putting these uh, allegations to him before he wrote to the INM 19. Um, and these letters kept going back and forth. Leslie Buckley refused to meet with INM's investigators. INM wrote back saying, well, look, you know, when we originally investigated these matters back last year, um, the answers that Leslie Buckley gave then don't seem to square with what we know now. Um, and this continued back and forth. Um, Leslie Buckley's solicitor said that he was extremely surprised and disappointed by this letter that was sent to the INM19, that it seems that your investigators have reached, as he said, a predetermined conclusion. Um, we've no intention of meeting. 
they reiterated again. INM's lawyers wrote back and said uh, they threatened legal proceedings then against Leslie Buckley. They said, "Look, we're going to sue you because um, uh, uh, you know the, the, the information that you have given us to date doesn't correspond with some of the facts that we now know." That's what they alleged uh, in these letters that have turned up in court proceedings. Leslie Buckley said, "You're making me a scapegoat." Was the phrase he used. Um, INM wrote back and they said they were appalled and horrified by Leslie Buckley's conduct, and they said, "If your reputation's been damaged, it isn't us who's damaged." Um, um, with an obvious implication there. Leslie Buckley then asked for €50,000 from independent news and media, which, mm-hmm. is, which is the excess um, on the, the director's, his director's liability insurance. Um, he asked for, for INM to, 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 to give the excess. Um, INM wrote back to say um, their understanding was that the insurance company was going to waive that excess um, so that they weren't going to give him fifty grand towards this insurance policy. And it all built up um, um, then to, to, to a big row. And, and, and the following month, uh, in May, uh, independent news and media filed their legal action against Leslie Buckley. Now, nothing has happened in that legal action since. Um, there's a, 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 a myriad legal cases uh, uh, that com- are probably very confusing for people going on, but nothing has happened in that legal action. And this, the point that we're at now is that we're waiting for the judge, Peter Kelly, to come back with his judgment in the application by the Director of Corporate Enforcement for inspectors to be appointed for INM. That's where we are now. So, I mean, and that's really critical to what happens next in this story. And as you say, it's it's an ongoing story and it's and it's complex. Mm. But, the, you know, the dramatic deterioration between the relationship between Buckley and the board, mm. on, on the one hand, it's extraordinary. But on, on the other hand, you could probably have predicted it too. Once you're outside the building, you can no longer influence what's going on inside the building. This is not the first time we've seen this in business. Yeah. But it's it's just... It's fascinating. It's fascinating, really. Well, 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 the sense from Leslie Buckley that he feels he's been made a scapegoat for all of the problems um, um, that that INM are facing, and INM's argument, as laid out in those legal letters, is that is that look. Leslie Buckley, you were the chairman at the time and this supposed data interrogation took place under your watch um, for for reasons that only you know about that that weren't for the company's benefit and the stuff that you told us last August um, doesn't seem to accord with with, with what has emerged from the ODCE. So, I mean, it's, it's it's it, it's intriguing, really, to see a company such as INM, where Leslie Buckley. Um, uh, uh, I mean, he he was you know he's a, anybody who's ever met Leslie Buckley knows that he's quite a he can be quite an intimidating and imposing man. He can be quite charming as well, um, but he really seemed to have a handle on everything that was going on in the company when he was chairman. I mean, to the extent that uh, Ian Drennan, in, in some remarks he's made, he's noted that the old broom on the INM board were, were very very willing to accept. Buckley's uh, statements. That's right. This is something else that's popped up in court documents that that, that we've been reading reports on over the last couple of days that, that, you know, Ian Ian, Ian Drennan really challenged um, um, the the INM board where he effectively said, look, you accepted um, you blindly accepted everything that Leslie Buckley told you. You didn't. You didn't. Um, I, I think what 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 Ian Drennan is suggesting to the INM board, uh, to the members who who, who survive, I suppose, from the old regime, um, principally Len, Len O'Hagan, who was the senior independent director. He says you didn't really challenge anything Leslie Buckley said to you. Um, you just went. You know, last August when the, the news of a data breach first emerged, and Leslie Buckley gave his story that it was about a cost reduction exercise, which remains his position. Um, and you didn't challenge this at all. Um, so uh, uh, Leslie Buckley has gone from the position of, um, you know, having really a, 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 a really a very very strong influence over the board and the operations of INM. It appears as well to now being the subject of legal action and uh, and and INM saying that they're appalled and horrified by his conduct. As he said, he's outside the tent now. 
Um, um, he's not part of the family anymore. Um, uh, but he still has friends in high places. He said, "Look, look, his his uh, the the he was a nominee of Dennis O'Brien. Dem- Dennis O'Brien is still a thirty percent shareholder in INM. Dennis O'Brien doesn't have any representation on the board uh, currently, as it stands. But something else that has emerged um, in recent days and 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 and, and, and in, in recent reports, a report by Mark Ty actually in the Sunday Times, which is that um, Dennis O'Brien is trying to get Kieran Mulvey appointed." to the uh, the board of INM as his nominee and that's been um, slowed down in a sort of a nomination process um I think uh, uh, Dennis O'Brien's um investment advisors wrote to INM to say they thought Kieran Mulvey was being messed around was the phrase they use um Kieran Mulvey is, uh, is is sort of well known in industrial relations circles yeah, he's a very busy man with Ryanair and everything else <laughs> yeah he is indeed yeah but he's effectively Kieran Mulvey is the sort of guy um whose whose job and whose role in Irish public life is to knock heads together you know, uh, between you know, he he he's known for his work bringing together employees, striking employees, and 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 the employers, and trying to get some sort of a deal through the state's um, uh, industrial relations machinery. So, look, maybe he's the perfect guy to go onto the board of INM to represent Dennis O'Brien's interests and to to sort of bring people together because it it does seem like there at the moment there's a chasm between INM and between Dennis O'Brien's last appointee to the board, who is Leslie Buckley. So just one more area. I mean, this story runs and runs. Uh, I and M has hired Deloitte for another investigation, and tell us about their role last yeah. time and what 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 is it going to do this time? When just before last August, um, when Robert Pitt was still the chief executive and when he was effectively at war with his own company, um, uh, and, and about two months before he resigned, um, he went to the ODCE and he, with his whistleblower complaint, and he says there's been this big data breach, and INM immediately hired Deloitte. Um, the, the consulting firm Deloitte to conduct an internal investigation um, and Leslie Buckley told Deloitte that this is a cost reduction exercise and there's nothing to see here and Deloitte produced a, a report to this effect um, effectively accepting what Leslie Buckley had said and they made a sort of a, a, a disclosure to the Data Protection Commissioner um, and which was basically a minor technical breach um, um, and, and, and that was case closed as far as I and were concerned at that time. Then Ian Drennan came in in March with his blockbuster affidavit and his case looking for high score inspectors and it became clear to everybody that um, this wasn't just some minor data breach that, um, and that people's uh, uh, emails were being searched and potentially journalists' emails were being searched. Um, so now uh, I&M have hired Deloitte, Deloitte um, the same Deloitte who produced that report back in August to do another investigation. Um, take two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take two. And and their, their, their grounds for doing so are that effectively they didn't know any of this 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 scandal, this potential alleged scandal that they knew nothing, I&M says it knew nothing about this until Ian Drennan came in with his blockbuster affidavit in March. And so on that basis, they, went, they want Deloitte to go back in and do a new investigation again. Um, and McCann Fitzgerald, the uh, uh, INM's lawyers, are also involved in this investigation. Now, as part of that, um, 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 McCann Fitzgerald, on, par- on behalf of this new investigation, have written to all these cybersecurity experts. You remember these um, Leslie Buckley's bodyguard, and um, they had a they had a guy who specialises in in, in in sweeping rooms for bugs, and they had a they had another guy who specialises in in in, in cybersecurity. INM has written these people allegedly took part in this data interrogation. Um, um, INM's lawyers on behalf of the Deloitte investigation, have written to these people threatening to sue them unless they um, cooperate with this new Deloitte investigation, which is ongoing, which hasn't concluded and which hasn't reached any conclusions. Um, um, but so far, it seems to have gotten a little secure in its attempts to to get these cybersecurity experts to take part. So there's still quite a few uh, strands to this story that have yet to be tied up. 
Um, perhaps they will in the next few months. But for now, we'll leave it on INM and move on to tourism. It's one of the big pre-budget stories that's floating around two months in advance of Pascal Donahue's big day in the Dáil, and that's that the possibility that hotels, guest houses, and B and B owners could see a restoration of their rate of VAT to thirteen point five percent, up from the current special rate of nine percent. So, Mark, why is this being muted now? Well, the government has doesn't have an awful lot of that horrible phrase fiscal space, so as you call it. But they don't have an awful lot of this um, uh, this infamous fiscal space to move in the budget. Um, they need to raise they need to raise some taxes um, in order to to, to 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 spend money elsewhere and to meet their commitments. And um, this ter- special VAT rate for tourism has long been seen by the government as somewhere where they could potentially raise money. So um, um, the tourism industry obviously is screaming blue murder and saying if you take this uh, special VAT rate uh, away from us, it's going to uh, uh, it's going to really badly affect the industry. Um, but uh, what so what what's happening uh, recently or in, in the last week or so? The Department of Finance produced a report, an economic report on this special VAT rate for tourism that was introduced originally in 2011 as a temporary measure. Um, and they came to the conclusion that, in their words, it's an economic deadweight. And they said, look, this thing can be jacked back up again to where it was before, which is 13.5%. And it won't really harm the industry at all. Um, and the industry, obviously, is is, uh, is is crying foul over that. It, it's, a very, it's a very difficult argument for the industry to make because tourism is booming. So, but how much tax for gone are we talking about with this? If if the tax rate had always been thirteen point five percent, the Department of Finance report says um, the tax for gone is two point six billion euros since two thousand and eleven. Now, you know, on paper that's correct. Strictly speaking, it's probably not because tourism might not be booming to the extent that it is now. If the, if the tax rate and, and, and hence prices were higher, um, um, the, the industry's argument is that. Um, in 2012, the first full year of this special um, um, tax rate for tourism, that, that the, the, the VAT take on tourism was 630 million that year. And they say this year, the VAT take on tourism is going to be over 1 billion. They say, so instead of tax foregone, it's tax created. And obviously, it's in the tourism industry's uh, uh, interest to attribute everything good that's happened since 2011 to tourism to this VAT move, um, which probably isn't accurate, to be honest. Okay, we're going to hear now from Henry Hodgson, who owns a guest house in Connemara. And here's an extract of a message that he posted online that I think gives a flavour of how the industry is feeling. My name is Henry Hodgson. I run an 11-bedroom guest house in Connemara. Um, When the 9% VAT came in, it literally kept our doors open. And ever since, although business thankfully now is much better, uh, our margins have not got much better all the rest of our costs keep rising as anyone that has runs a household even a normal house will know prices are going up every year so although business is better the margins are not getting any better we are the only employer in this area we're six kilometers out of boreen in connemara we're the only people who pay rates in the area we've employed 14 people we can't afford an increase in vat if People are serious about keeping jobs in the regions, about trying to move people away from Dublin, about keeping the vibrancy, particularly along the West Coast. This is by far the best and fairest way of supporting us. So, Mark, we heard from Henry Hodgson there. There's still a lot of difficulties for the industry, especially perhaps for those uh, smaller owners of, of guest houses rather than the big hotel chains. 
Yeah, like w- w- effectively, what what the department is trying, or, w- or what the department has proposed, or, and 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 what Fia Kelly, our deputy political editor, reported um, last Saturday in the Irish Times, is that what the government's considering doing is bringing back in the thirteen and a half percent tax rate, but only for VAT rate, but only for accommodation. Um, um, so it would capture just hotels, guest houses, and B and Bs, and they would leave it in place for other tourism businesses. And so that also, includes restaurants, cafes. Restaurants, ca- restaurants would be fine. Cafes would be fine. Uh, and you know, you know, Tato Park and amusement parks and these sort of places will be fine. Also, newspapers. We should point out get the special tourism VAT rate for some reason. And hairdressers. I, uh, and it's because we fall into a particular VAT class. Um, and uh, uh, you heard from Henry there, and he runs a, a small guest house in Connemara, and his point is that look. Um, um, you know, uh, uh, it, it'll decimate his his balance sheet. When the, you have to cash your mind back to 2011, when the VAT, special VAT rate was brought in, and the tourism, tourism ministry's argument now is that it was brought in to make us more competitive, but it wasn't. Um, at the time, it was there, a crisis measure. At, it was a crisis measure to keep the industry afloat, to stop people going bust. It was for margin repair. That's why it was brought in. That's really why it was brought in. At the time, we were in the middle of a huge, they call it an, an in, in, internal devaluation. Um, our, our tourism product at the time was really competitive in price. That it happened really quickly. Um, um, our hotels were really cheap. The price of everything had come down in the country. This, this, this really, really painful thing that we had gone through over the previous couple of years. So, so. A lot of tourism businesses were on the verge of going bust. And by lowering the VAT rate from 13.5% to 9%, they effectively added 4.5 percentage points onto the profit margins of every tourism business. It was, in effect, a backdoor state bailout of the tourism industry. It stopped a lot of people from going bust, but it didn't make them any more competitive. They didn't reduce their prices on the basis of it. And they were just able to pocket more of the money that they took in over the counter um, and towards the profits. So the industry's argument now is uh, if you uh, if you restore this VAT rate, um, uh, it's gonna it's gonna decimate the industry. A, a lot of the 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 the, the push towards um, uh, bring restoring the VAT rate has been on the basis that Dublin hotels are absolutely booming, mm-hmm. uh, and they're coining an awful lot of the that you 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 asked me before about you know the tax foregone two point six billion last year alone the tax foregone was four hundred ninety million, and a huge portion of that four hundred ninety million has gone into the pockets of booming hotels. Um, and um, so, to a certain extent, it was. It is a relic of the of the recession. This special nine percent uh, VAT rate. It's, it's it's a relic. It was brought in as a temporary measure to bail out the sector to to, to keep businesses afloat. And most of the benefit now, four hundred ninety million euros a year. Most of the benefit of that is flowing to businesses that don't need it. In my opinion, I think that the tourism nine percent VAT rate is too blunt a tool to help the people. Most of the benefit of it flows to people who don't need help at all. Dublin hotels where they're beating customers back with sticks. Um, um, and, and, and smaller tourism businesses, for example, like bike hire or boat hire businesses down the country, they don't qualify for the 9% tourism VAT rate. Newspapers, we qualify for it. Hairdressers qualify for it. Uh, um, you know, I mean, newspapers, maybe they need assistance in other ways. The newspaper industry has its own challenges, but we shouldn't get it through a 9% tourism VAT rate. Um, um, so the... the, the, the you know, there, there is a big. Well, some argument. people say it should be zero percent on newspapers. It just <laughs> there, there you go. But but but, but, there, but there's a major argument to be had that the tourism VAT rate, that most of the cost of that VAT rate doesn't go to the businesses that need it and they need to come up with something that's much more targeted um, towards businesses like Henry's down in, down in Connemara. Maybe they could um, come up with a sackload of money for promoting tourism in Connemara that would bring more customers to Henry and he wouldn't need this lower VAT rate. Um, um, but it's also worth pointing out, by the way, that, that um, uh, corporate canteens 
get the 9% tourism VAT rate. The, so the likes of Aramark, which which does um, uh, staff canteens uh, uh, all over the country, I mean, they get the benefit of the 9% tourism VAT rate. So, you know, I, I think it's a very, very inefficient and badly targeted measure that, that, that spends most of its cash on businesses that don't need help and some businesses that do need help get no help at all. Okay, well, the budget is in October and it's a wait and see until then. For now, thank you very much, Mark Paul. Is commuting about to become even more painful? Under proposals being considered by the government, motorists may be taxed according to the distance they drive. I'm joined by motoring editor Michael McAleer and consumer affairs correspondent Connor Pope. Michael, what exactly is being proposed here and how would it work? Basically, they're looking at replacing the current excise duty system, which puts about 50 cent on a litre of diesel and 60 cent, roughly speaking, on a litre of petrol, and replacing this with a tax based on your usage. That's one element to it, but they'd also, you know, these are proposals. Some of the usage element could be brought into the uh, tax called VRT that is put on new cars, and it could ultimately replace your motor tax even at the moment is which is also based on emissions because as emissions rates drop on these on newer more efficient vehicles as we move through towards electric vehicles that tax take has also been hit so ultimately the government are trying to fill the vacuum in their funds in the near future as more and more people move towards more fuel efficient cars so the motivation for this is primarily to um, keep the exchequer take of excise and other motoring taxes up Exactly. And that shows it it reveals that the changes made in 2008 were based on environmental reasons to lower our emissions and therefore to incentivize people to move to more fuel efficient vehicles. What we have here is the is the reality, the scenario that too many people moved too quickly to, to fuel efficient vehicles and the tax the tax take suffered. And now they're having to roll back on that and are looking at alternatives because ultimately the industry as a whole across the globe is moving to more fuel efficient vehicles and that's going to severely dent the exchequer returns from the from the motorist pocket. So is this a good, a bad or a completely terrible idea? It's a blunderbuss. Uh, the idea of, of taxing people for uses because what it does is it disincentivizes people at the moment who are moving into to, to more fuel efficient vehicles. And also it should be remembered that these are the same people who were persuaded and told and cajoled with the last tax policies to move into diesels from their petrol cars in 2008. They took a hit on the petrol because everybody moved that way and the petrol, the value of petrol cars dropped. So therefore they were trading in, they took a hit at that level and then they got into diesels. Now they're being told that those diesels are, are, are emitting nitrogen oxides, which are poisonous and carcinogens. So they should move to petrol and they should move to electric vehicles. Those are coming on stream. And now they've been told, actually, the incentives, ultimately here what we're talking about, is we're removing those incentives as well. And you're going to be taxed on usage. So you need to find an alternative way to get to work. And from the people who suffer the most in these instances are the commuters. And it's not, as these things are, are rolled out, it's not in a policy vacuum. The fact is that the a lot of people live in rural areas in the commuter belts because there are no, there, there's a failure in housing policy, because they couldn't afford housing closer to the work. The CSO stats show that the average commuter lives uh, 15 kilometres from their workplace. Many of them, 240 thousand, it was saying, lives over 25 kilometres from their workplace. Many of those live in 
towns. They've, they've suffered from negative equity. We all know that the usual uh, things that And these are the same people who can't afford the most efficient cars. So exactly. you're, what they're you're struggling saying is to get them. they're being punished twice, three times, multiple times over yeah. for their predicament. Yeah, and the people who will ultimately be able to benefit from this are low mileage motorists uh, who live close to their work. So without getting to creating these caricatures, it's people who live in the city centre in south side Dublin or north side Dublin close to their work who can have a multitude of options using public transport who also have a multitude of options and they can to get to work and where they work and they and they can uh, choose to to buy the most expensive least in least efficient cars based on the usage because they're not going to use it that much so you have you'll have and you will continue to a tax structure that supports Ferraris and Porsches in in Balls Bridge and hits yet again hits the poor person who, out of the out of following the government's uh, incentive, bought a diesel in two thousand and eight, is struggling to go twenty five kilometres or thirty kilometres every day into work in rush hour traffic and doesn't have a public transport option at the at the door. So, Connor Pope, uh, consumer affairs correspondent, say you're the average commuter, and maybe you've been uh, influenced by a lot of the the talk about climate change. For example, you think oh, I'll buy you know one of these efficient cars and I'll pay lower tax as a result. And now here comes the government saying, well, actually we're going to charge you according to distance. There's a little bit of uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of uh, reg- uh, regressiveness about that, isn't there? Well, I'd say the motor tax system in this country is a shambles for a start, and it's absolutely far that somebody who can afford to drive an €80,000 BMW or Mercedes pays less in motor tax than somebody who can't afford to drive a car that's older than 2002 or 2003 um, because of because the taxes are now based on emissions. But I do firmly believe in the notion that polluter, plays, polluter pays. And if somebody drives 30,000 kilometres in their car, well, then it makes sense that they should pay more motor tax than someone who drives 3,000 kilometres. They're creating more harmful emissions. They're using the road infrastructure more. And they should be paying more. Now, that's so that, that and that's a principle that should be across the board. If you use a service, if you use a resource, you should pay more than somebody who doesn't. It doesn't seem fair to me that somebody and let's let's just take create an, an equal playing field. Let's say two people who are driving the same type of car, 2004 uh, Ford uh, Focus. Why do, should the person who's uh, driving 2000 kilometres a year pay the same motor tax as somebody who's driving 30,000 uh, kilometres a year. They shouldn't. And there is a problem with the infrastructure that's built up around rural Ireland. But we have to start somewhere in fixing it. And what we should be doing is we should be encouraging people to drive more fuel efficient, less pollutant heavy cars. But we should also be encouraging people to use their cars less. And the only way you can do that is by encouraging people to use public transport more. Now, the terrible thing is, I think we all agree, this measure is not environmentally driven. It's not driven with the consumer in mind. It's not driven with the environment in mind. It's driven purely with the taxman in mind. The taxman wants to uh, uh, restore their coffers which are depleted as a result of the Green Party's policies in 2008-2009. It should be driven by the environment and it should be driven by what is equitable and fair for consumers. That would be the ideal scenario for all of us. But in effect, people are already paying a, a usage tax. You know, if they the more fuel they buy, the more, the more excise they and, pay. And, and we pay more tax on our fuel in this country than virtually every other country in the developed world. And that is also a problem that needs to be addressed. But the bottom line here is that somebody who drives more should pay more for their car. It's the same across the board and it would make it anything that, disin, anything that disincentivizes car use, I think, would be welcomed. And I know that the 
public transport infrastructure in this country is poor. But what we need to be doing is, instead of throwing our hands up like Ned Flanders and saying everything is hopeless and there's nothing we can do about this, what we need to be doing is saying we need to make the public transport infrastructure better. We need to make it more attractive for motorists to get out of their cars, to get into public transport, which would be better for the environment and ultimately would be better for everybody's pocket. So, Michael, I mean, essentially, there's a big conflict of interest here between the uh, minister who has responsibility for climate action, which is Dennis uh, Nocton, and the minister for finance, uh, Pascal Donoghue. And this this might come to a head in the budget later this year. It's likely to. And and it should be remembered that as the big fear factor that they're, they're talking about here is the advent of electric vehicles, which will take away, take the car out of the environmental And can debate. I just interrupt there for a second, but, Michael, because that shouldn't be something yeah. that we're afraid of. That is something that we should be welcoming because ultimately every single car-reliant country in the developed world needs to move towards the electronic vehicle with open arms. It's not something that we should be afraid of. And you're right. We the government is afraid of it yeah. because it's going to really deplete their resources and something needs to happen to fill that vacuum. And this might be the answer. This, uh, this is... This is Far too preemptive because at the moment we have 3,000 electric vehicles on the road out of a pop- car population of 2 million, over 2 million. This is not going to incentivize people to make that move. This is going to disincentivize people to make that move. In terms of the electric car uh, population and the, incent- and the idea that we're moving towards it, the Irish population, unfortunately, is not going to dictate that pace. Um, we sell as many car- new cars here as they do in Manchester. Mm. So the motor industry is being led elsewhere. It's moving to, in that direction, regardless of whether the Irish want to or not. Um, so we're going towards an electric future. We're going towards an autonomous future as well. But these things will come to us. We just have to make a decision of how we uh, adapt to that new environment. It seems that we are adapting to it in a way that only cares about how much money that goes into the taxpayers' coffers. It doesn't take into account environmental policy. It shows that the changes at the time were painted and portrayed as being green and eco-friendly, when in reality, they were all about just protecting the exchequer returns. And that, that's where Ireland's going to get punished. So it seems to me, Michael, that there's two risks here. And, and one of them is that uh, as people move to electric vehicles, those who can't afford to do so, you know, even with incentives, are, are being asked to make up the difference in, in the tax coffers with higher excise than ever before. And the other risk, of course, is that the that the person who does buy the electric ve- vehicle, perhaps, you know, in the knowledge that they have certain reliefs at the moment, uh, will find that that relief is, is taken away. Yeah, it was inevitable that the reliefs will start to be tapered back. And you're going to start to see that in the next while. It's likely in the next budget, and this is without any evidence whatsoever, but I just suspect there that from this tax report, etc., that there's signals that perhaps the incentives on conventional hybrids will be certainly reduced if not removed in the next in the upcoming budget and they'll move more and more towards incentivizing or giving some sort of incentive to electric car buyers but ultimately what you're talking about is they need to be incentivizing them th- those that change over quicker and more efficiently and that's where perhaps the tax policy should be directed rather than something like this which does seem to effectively show that all they care about is how much money is coming into the coffers and they're actually removing the incentive for people to buy more fuel-efficient cars. So I'm, I'm just going to finish by asking you both, and I think you've kind of given me a flavour already, of, of what you think the, the government should do, starting with you, Connor. Well, to be honest, I think this is probably one of those summer silly season stories that will go nowhere. They're flying a kite. Uh, I can't imagine any big change will happen in October uh, or whenever in October. But if you were to ask me what we should be doing, I think we should be incentivising people to use their cars less, to, put, to move towards electric vehicles, and ultimately that will uh, protect the environment and protect our pockets.
Michael? Yeah, I have to agree. I think this is a blunderbuss. I think this is, a, it, it, they're just flying a kite. I think uh, a, a slower, more progressive move towards uh, the advent of electric vehicles is probably the best way to go. And for every move they make, they need to consider not just those who are buying new cars, but the two million motorists on the road who are driving older vehicles and what impact any changes are going to have on them because the average age of cars in Ireland is over six, six years and over and that's the motorists, those are the motorists that are using the roads at the moment and they are being further and further ostracised away from the, the speed of adoption of new technology on the roads at the moment is leaving them behind. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Connor Pope, Michael McAleer. And that's it for this edition of Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Mark Paul, Michael McAleer and Connor Pope. This podcast was produced by Declan Connan with JJ Vernon on sound. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. I'm Laura Slattery. Until next time, goodbye.